That was a first. In all the years I've ever given a children's story, I've never had spontaneous applause. <laughs> well done, boys and girls. That was really, that was quite special. Thank you for that. One of the messages that Paul brings to the book of Ephesians is that we get to experience the depth of God's love. And one of the ways we do that is in the fellowship of believers, where the love of God dwells in each heart. When those hearts connect on any level, it's the experience of God's love. And so I feel kind of impressed that we need a moment like that right now. And so I want to invite you to express the love of God just by a warm greeting to a brother or sister in Christ here in the community. Just take about one minute, please, and stand up where you're at. Uh, stand up, stretch your knees, and uh, just greet someone in the name of Jesus and the love of God. <clears throat> Thank you for that moment of just uh, connecting. And uh, let's, uh, let's turn our attention now to the letter. This, this letter that we call the, the book of Ephesians here in the New Testament that we are journeying through. We actually have a, a pretty unique glimpse of, of Paul's personality the apostle paul the writer of this letter we we have a pretty unique glimpse of paul's personality here in the letter this letter that he has written to the believers who lived in ephesus who lived around ephesus and any of those who might yet read it as we are today now we know a few things about paul he he shares in some places a bit of his biographical sketch if you will not going to go there specifically but we do know that paul was a was a brilliantly minded person. He was a very intelligent and had a sharp, brilliant mind. And that mind was developed through education. We know that growing up uh, in the story of, of Paul, he, he grew up in a Jewish family being mentored and, and, and educated in the schools of the prophets, if you will, or the Jewish educational system. We know that by the time we're introduced to him in the book of Acts, that he is a young, up-and-coming, rising star in the highest council of the Jewish religion in the Pharisaic council. And so he must have had an extensive education growing up, which uniquely equipped him for the calling that Jesus would put on his life. We can discern from what we know of Jewish culture, Jewish education, and Paul's journey that he had mastered the Old Testament. The scripture of their day was that we refer to as the Old Testament, collected in the same way that we have it, and he must have mastered that Old Testament, memorizing massive quantities and understanding it on a deeper level than probably any of us here understand it, because he understood it within the story of his own people, within the culture of his own people, and in the language in which it was written. Paul had mastered the Hebrew language. 
So when he interacted and educated in Scripture, it was not in translation, it was in original. But he had also mastered the Greek language. That was the language of writing of his day. That is the language that he wrote the book of Ephesians in the Greek language. Uh, language itself in fact we know we have evidence that he was a master of it by the way he structures sentences you look at for example the book of John a beautiful book the gospel but the Greek that John uses is a kind of a very simple Greek in the common everyday kind of conversational but when Paul writes Greek it's on a different level it's on a whole different level of mastery of the language. In fact, one of the clues of that is, is every once in a while, when, when Paul is wanting to teach something that is coming from rich Old Testament scripture history, from Jewish Hebrew thought, but it's being now translated into a new revelation in Jesus Christ and written into the Greek language, often he comes across moments where he doesn't have a word in the Greek language that will properly communicate what he needs to communicate. And so you know what he does? He creates words. Many instances, the first time we see a word is when Paul created it he crafted it to communicate something that had never been communicated before and once he presented that word then it became a word in the greek dictionary he mastered the language and though he was raised as a jew he also seems to have a full understanding of greek philosophy that was the philosophical structure of the gentile world of the day he had mastered it to a degree where we see evidence of paul being able to to debate in those greek philosophies setting up the theology of god against the philosophies of the greek world and he was able to not just debate it but he was able to understand it in a way where he could relate to that philosophy and use it as a platform to communicate the gospel to the Gentile world I think it's safe to say Paul had a brilliant mind and it was an educated mind and it was a mind that no matter what side of the fence he was on it was always zealous and motivated for spiritual things now along with that brilliant mind it seems something else came along Paul seems to be easily diverted from his line of thought in the scripture, when we look at the writings of Paul, often we see him, he'll write something and then it seems like in that moment he wrote something and a question pops into his head that somebody may ask and he'll take off in that direction and start answering that question and then he'll try to find his way back to his original thought oh, and then something will pop into his mind. Have you ever known someone like that? Have you ever known someone who just seems to jump all over the place when you're talking to them and you're, you're really trying hard, but you I have no idea what you're trying to tell me. You started here, then you went there, and now you're over here. What are we talking about? Have you ever known someone like that? They're talking about one thing, and then that one thing it just kind of sparks a memory or, or it brings something to mind that they feel is relevant to whatever they're sharing. And so they, they take off in that direction. And while they're taking off in that direction, something else sparks a memory. And oh, that reminds me of a time. And they start telling this story. And it's just kind of this zigzagging course of conversation. Their minds work fast. And so they find themselves often kind of what we call going down the rabbit trail. You ever heard that? Chasing down the rabbit, down the rabbit trail. But that's not really a good description for Paul. 
Because in our vernacular, in our language, this idiom, the rabbit trail, it's often used to describe an, like an expression when, when somebody veers off topic in a direction that doesn't really have any use. It's kind of veering away in kind of a useless way. And that is not what we see happening with Paul. Paul may get diverted from his original line of thought and he may kind of track off into a different direction. But that sidetrack, that rabbit trail is rich with meaning and to our benefit, but it can make it a little tricky to follow Paul sometimes. And so we have to really invest some time in hearing carefully what he says. You see, sometimes when people kind of divert like that, what it represents is a very bright mind loaded with different thoughts, and that mind is moving quickly. And as they're tracking through, they're trying to stay ahead of their own thinking. Maybe Paul was one of those individuals. Maybe his mind would quickly launch into an explanation. But these launches, these diversions, if you will, they were still guided by the Spirit, and they were not useless sidetracks. They actually add a lot of flavor to what we see. Let me show you a little example of this, and I hope I'm able to communicate this well to you, but just to jump back to show you just a little example. Today's sermon title is For This Reason. And three times in this letter, at this point, Paul says, For This Reason. And it seems to be a phrase that is to preface, because of what I just shared, for these reasons, I want to pray. I want to write a prayer for you. But look at what happens here in chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason... He's just kind of expressed some things, very important in the introduction, but for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you. So for this reason, I've heard about your faith, I've heard about the love in your community, so I pray, I pray prayers of thanksgiving and I make mention of you in my prayers, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge. I pray that. And then what comes next seems to meander just a little bit. For this reason, Paul just wrote about, and he says, I'm going to pray. I pray that. And he starts to pray, but then he diverts for a little bit. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, there's a prayer, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is in the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. All of that sounds like a prayer, but then all of a sudden he wants to talk about what he just prayed about. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might and on it goes. The prayer seems to kind of come to a stop because he starts to unpack the meaning of what he just prayed about. It's kind of like a rabbit trail, but it's a very useful rabbit trail because he continues along this line of thought in the rest of chapter 1 and on in through chapter 2. It's like Paul started to write a prayer. He prays something that takes his mind into teaching mode, so he decides to divert from the prayer and to go into the teaching. He tries to come back. And at the beginning of chapter 3, he finally comes back to that praise again for this reason. And then later on in the middle of chapter 3, for this reason, he diverts and he comes back again for this reason. And then he writes a prayer. 
So today that's what I want to look at is, is chapter 3. Paul's wonderfully useful rabbit trail, if you will. Paul's prayer for the believers who lived in Ephesus, who lived around Ephesus, and anyone who might ever read this letter. And that includes us, even right here, right now today. Paul is still writing for our edification. Before we go any further, let me just pause for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, I just appeal for your strength and your help today. My, my mind is tired and uh, the words aren't flowing as easily as they sometimes do. But Lord, I just appeal for your help to help me unpack this scripture well for my church family. Lord, so send us your Holy Spirit. Uh, reveal to us the message you would have revealed. And may each of us, Lord, have a gift of being spiritually attentive to your scripture for just a, a little while here, Lord. Help us to focus in and to not be distracted, but to focus so that we might really gain a blessing from your word. And indeed, Lord, more of you and less of me, I pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then just for a moment, notice that little dash. And then he says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. What's happening here? Paul here is apparently beginning another prayer just based on how he writes and how he communicates. He starts this chapter in the same way he kind of wrote that phrase in chapter 1. He comes back after that long, uh, beautiful chapter 2 and he says here in chapter 2, For this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he takes off on a diversion. Notice that little dash at the end of verse 1. What that dash is, is the translators of our scripture are trying to indicate that Paul was writing something and then he just kind of put a big parenthesis right there. He's going to launch off into something else. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and having written that, he stops for a moment, if indeed, and then he takes off in a different direction. So what was it that launched Paul into this important kind of diversion, if you will? It would seem that his self-description as a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles as he wrote that, just kind of picture the humanity in the mind of Paul, he wrote that and he thought, huh, there's something I want to say about that. And so he goes ahead and he starts to say it. Now think about this. Is Paul literally a prisoner of Christ here or is he a prisoner of Rome? In a literal sense, Paul was a prisoner of the Caesar of Rome, Nero. Paul had been preaching salvation to the Gentiles and the Jews. And as he preached that inclusion of the Gentile world, it came as a threat and an affront to the Jewish nation and the leaders. And on one occasion, Paul is preaching this message of inclusion and the, the Jewish leaders, they were literally incited to violence against Paul. And in this incitement and disruption, the Roman authorities heard word that there was trouble brewing and so they literally intervened and they took Paul out of that violent situation. And that kind of set off a sequence of events that eventually led to Paul appealing his case to Caesar 
which he had a right to make that appeal because Paul uniquely was also fully a citizen of Rome. Give you just a little glimpse of that back in the book of, chap of Acts chapter 21. Crying out. Now these are those that were, uh, they were bothered by what Paul was preaching. So they cried out, men of Israel come to our aid. This is the man, Paul, who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and against this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Look at the tie-in here to Ephesians, Ephesus. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And so he's preaching, and they don't like what he has to say. He's preaching against us. Let us rise up. We have to handle this. And part of what was so uh, irritating to them, what agitated them so much, was on one occasion in the city, in Jerusalem, Paul had a man by the name of Trophimus that was from Ephesus, and he had taken him into somewhere that non-Jews were not allowed to be. So look at what happens. Then all of the city was provoked. And the people rushed together and they, they, they take hold of Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut and while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. And so the Roman says, nope, we don't like disruptions. We'll allow a lot of things to happen. But any disruption like this or any incitement to violence, anything that kind of threatens our control, we're going to stamp it down. And so they sent someone to get Paul out of that situation. And that kind of began a sequence of events. A few chapters later, it says this. But Paul said, he's kind of, he's at the, uh, the council of the Romans there in this region. Paul says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal. I'm in court here where I ought to be tried. Paul says, I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, then I don't refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. And then he exercised his Roman rights. He says, I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus, who was the leader of the council, the tribunal there, then when Festus had confronted his council or conferred with his council, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar, Paul, so to Caesar you shall go. So Paul was a prisoner of Rome, but he never referred to himself that way. Literally, he was a prisoner of Rome, but he never referred to himself that way. Paul saw himself as a prisoner of and for Jesus. Because it was his calling to preach the good news of salvation in Jesus and to preach that message to the Gentile world, that is what brought him in conflict with the authorities both in the Jewish religion and of Rome. And because of that, he says, no, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And I'm a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles. Perspective matters, doesn't it? 
his perspective mattered a great deal, how he framed his current reality. Listen, when we are experiencing hardships, when we are experiencing material loss, when life gets difficult, and especially those hardships or, or losses or, or difficulties are because we are choosing to stand on Christian principles as a follower of Jesus, then when those moments happen, we can either see ourselves as victims or as humble champions for Jesus. We can say, I'm a prisoner of that circumstance, or no, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Let's say, for example, you're, you've been working hard at your place of employment and there's a job opportunity, a promotion available to you and, and you put your name in the hat, as it were, but you become aware that to really politic for that position probably is going to mean some unethical behavior. I need, to, I need to fudge things. I need to be dishonest a little bit. And you say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm a follower of Jesus. And sure enough, the job goes to somebody else. In a moment like that, you can say, Poor me, I'm a victim to these circumstances. Or you can say, no, no, no. I'm a champion for Jesus because I lived in that moment the way he wanted me to live. And on and on and on and on we could go with examples like that. When hardships come upon us and, and we don't know why they're happening, they seem unfair to us. In those moments we can say, I am a victim. This shouldn't be. I'm a follower of Jesus. Or we could say, no, this is evidence that I'm a follower of Jesus because Jesus says, follow me and in this world you'll have trouble, but I'll be with you. Our perspective matters a great deal. And Paul sees himself as a champion for Jesus because God's grace had been given to him and had been given to him not just for his own benefit, but for the benefit of the entire Gentile world. And in case you haven't kind of clued into this, there's, in this description, there's Jews and then there's Gentiles. And so when we're talking about Gentile world, that's a lot of people. The Jewish nation was a significant nation, but the Gentile world was massive in comparison. And he had been given grace to welcome that massive world into the love of God. He knew that was his mission. He knew that he was a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. When he met Jesus on that road to Damascus and, and, uh, and then he spent three days there with his eyesight kind of taken as he just wrestled with the realities of what just happened. What does all of that mean? God sent Paul, the message of his calling right away through a man named Ananias. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and to the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul knew his calling was sure. Paul knew from the very beginning, this is who I am in Jesus, and I will submit to that. I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and if I am suffering, then that's just evidence that I am living in the life Jesus has for me. Paul was called to go to the Gentiles with the good news of salvation that they were welcomed in. And Paul's equipping for that ministry came in part by having what's called here in chapter 3 the mystery revealed to him. And he's already written about this revealed mystery. In chapter 2, Pastor Josh unpacked it well, but, but he speaks in these words, but now, verse 13 of chapter 2, but now in Christ Jesus, 
you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the message that Paul was called to preach. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly have been far off have been brought near, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile alike, into one and broke down the barrier of the divided wall. He's already talked about it. He's already kind of explained this message. But it seems like here in chapter 3, he wants to spend some more time on it to make it abundantly clear. So, I am a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. Then look what comes next. Verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, by referring to this mystery, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Paul had already written about it. He'd already began to unpack this idea of a, of a mystery of the ages. The mystery of the fullness of Christ has been revealed. He refers the reader to, to go back and, and read again what, what you just read, what I've already written. Go back and understand it more fully. But he's recognizing in this moment the privilege of knowing the mystery of Christ. And he puts it in a little frame of reference by saying this. Previous generations were not given this revealed mystery. They looked for it. They wondered about it. They hoped for it. But it was not fully revealed to previous generations. But now it has been revealed by the Spirit of truth through the apostles of which Paul counted himself very humbly as an apostle called by Jesus. So what is this mystery that he's saying? I want to talk about it some more. Go back and read it again, but, but let me spend a little more time in the mystery. He makes it very clear. This is the mystery. This is the revelation. To be specific, he says. Let me just say it in no uncertain terms. Let me tell you exactly what I'm trying to communicate. To be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. The Gentiles are fellow members of the body of Christ. The Gentiles are fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of His power. He makes it as plain as can be. Here's the message. Here's the mystery revealed in Jesus. Through Jesus, the Gentiles... They are participants now. They are fellow heirs of all that was promised to God's people. In Jesus, the Gentiles, they're now fully fellow members of the body of Christ. In Jesus, the Gentiles, they're now they're fellow partakers in the promises of Christ and the grace of God. Now we read that and we think, wow, that sounds so nice. But I don't think we're able to really grasp just how earth-shaking in the religious circles in the cultural circles in the political circles in just any kind of barriers you can think about just how earth-shaking statements like that were it's hard for us to fully grasp just how radical this message was and really it still is very radical because listen in the ancient world for century after century actually for millennia after millennia 
The barriers that existed between people were rigid and complete and impassable. Political barriers were high. Cultural barriers were significant. Racial barriers between different people groups were more extreme than you and I might ever have experienced. The, the gender barriers between men and women were dramatic. And in Paul's perspective, the worst of them all were the religious barriers were extreme. And in all of those divisions and all of those barriers, he began to speak about it in chapter 2 when he said, For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one, broke down the barriers that divided. He returns to this and, and just no one ever dreamed in the world that Paul was called to preach in, no one ever dreamed that God's privileges were for all people. This group had their God and their God's privileges were only for our group. And the Jewish nation, we have our one and only true living God. And all that He has is only for us. No one could even imagine that God was saying, no. Through the Messiah, through Jesus, it's for everybody. For God so loved the world that He gave us Jesus. That first century Jewish people they were they held deeply ingrained beliefs that non-jews were at best worthless in the sight of god they held no value at all in that deeply ingrained belief that the jewish nation and, and this was just ingrained from the their first cognizance moment their entire life and one of the most difficult things to do in this life is something that you have always been immersed in to be able to take that and hold it at arm's length and look at it differently it's incredibly difficult to do that they were just in the flow of deeply millennial culture and in that culture anybody outside of the jewish nation they were enemies at best they were good to be slaves and at worst they all deserved the destruction of god extreme prejudice and bias and racism and here comes paul saying because god has revealed the mystery to me that has been revealed through jesus none of that is true it is open to everybody it was Paul who was given that revelation of the fullness of God's love, the expansiveness of his forgiveness, and that the promises that God has communicated to this broken world were for everybody. God's love was extended in Jesus to the entire world. And had there been no revelation made to Paul, it's possible that we would not have a worldwide Christian church. If you take Paul out of the equation and the revelation and the calling that was put on Paul's life that he's communicating here in the letter to the people of Ephesus, if that hadn't happened, then the Christian faith might be just a cloistered faith over there in the Middle East somewhere. But it did happen. And because it happened, we have a worldwide Christian church body in which every nation, tribe, tongue, and people are embraced and welcomed to come in. Do we do a good job at that all the time? No. Do we still erect our barriers and the brokenness of our sin? We do. But the message of Christ is everybody is welcome into His body. 
It was Paul's preaching of this revealed mystery. The mystery being no one could ever imagine that's what God had in mind and purpose. This all-encompassing love of God, it's because of Paul's message that we're here today as followers of Jesus because we have been welcomed in. And Paul was the one that trumpeted that message and it still rings true today. Paul recognized that by virtue of being granted this tremendous revelation of God's grace, he was also granted a tremendous calling to share that message. Here in verses 8 to 10, he says this, To me, the very least of all saints, he's very humble. He knows he's undeserving of the calling that he has received. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages had been hidden in God the God that created all things so that the the manifold wisdom of God the multiple layers of the wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places well that's intriguing the mystery of God's love for all across all barriers. It so transformed Paul from being a, a persecutor of Christians to, to being the, the leader, a spirit-empowered messenger of the message of Christ. And to Paul, he was extremely privileged and, and humbled to have the honor to share what he called the unfathomable riches of Christ. You know, that's a description of depth. In nautical language, a fathom is a measurement of the depth. And he's saying this is unfathomable. It's deeper than you can possibly imagine. And I have been given the privilege of telling people about that. To bring light, bring to light that which had been hidden in darkness. And to share this manifold wisdom of God to the world through the Christian message to such a degree that even those in the heavenly realms are in awe of God's love. One of the realities of being a follower of Jesus, of having the privilege of being in a saving relationship with Jesus, is that with all that that brings in its tail, all that being in relationship with Jesus brings for us. We've been given the calling to tell people about it. We've been given the precious things of Christ, not just for our own spiritual well-being, but that we might share it so that others may be made whole in Christ as well. It is spiritually dangerous to be selfish with what Christ has done with us. When we are given this revelation, this, this mystery that was hidden for generations and, and we now live in an era after Jesus that has been made plain to us, one of the warnings is do not just be possessive with that good news. Don't just look at it as it's all for me and hold it in because if you hold it in for yourselves, then you might just lose it. Sharing the unfathomable riches of the love of God as revealed through Jesus is to be our highest joy, 
not our greatest chore. The mystery, verse 11 and 12, this mystery that God's love is for all people across barriers. This mystery was in accordance with the eternal purposes which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. You see what Paul just said there? This revealed mystery, the love of God for all people across all barriers, all welcomed into one body in the person of Jesus Christ? This was the plan all along. This was in accordance to eternal purposes. This was according to the eternal purpose of God carried out through the Messiah Jesus. The gathering all people into one worldwide body of Christ, that's God's preferred eternal purpose and plan. The good news of salvation and the merits of Jesus, it didn't just kind of go to those of us who aren't Jews because the Jews didn't receive it. Sometimes our language makes it sound that way. That, well, because they finally, as a collective whole, rejected it, though as a nation they rejected it, there were thousands upon thousands of Jews who received it in fullness, like Paul. But somehow, corporately, as a nation, it was rejected. Well, because that didn't work out, God says, well, now what am I going to do? Well, I guess I just, I'll take it to everybody else. No, no, no. Salvation for all, an embrace of God's love for all, was not an afterthought for God. It wasn't His plan B. It was His eternal purpose that it would be this way. It was through the Jewish nation that He wanted to communicate that message, but they were unwilling to communicate the message, so He called a man like Paul from that nation to speak a new message, to bring the whole world into His love. That was God's forever plan. We're not here because we're fortunate to be part of plan B. We're here because God purposed for us to be part of his love. Paul's little sidetrack, it's pretty rich. And I'm glad he took it. And he closes this little parenthetical sidetrack with this word, Therefore I ask you to not lose heart at my tribulation on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Paul is a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles who are reading this letter. And it's almost like as he wrote that. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, oh, they're probably discouraged that I'm a prisoner. They're probably worried that my message is being diminished because I'm a prisoner. I need to encourage them that none of that is true. And so he writes to them saying, don't lose heart. Because this tribulation, it's not against God's purpose. It's for His glory. And then he prays. <laughs> I'm going to close with this. Paul has written what he felt compelled to write in that moment. And now he returns to the idea of praying for the believers in and around the region of Ephesus. And he says this, For this reason, Third time he's now written these three letters. Four words. For this reason. I bow my knees before the Father. From whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. For this reason. Third time Paul has written these three simple words. 
seemingly as a preface to prayer, and this time he seems that he's really going to stay on track and actually write the prayer. And it's a serious prayer. And we know it's serious because he writes, I bow my knees. Well, that sounds normal to us, right? Well, we teach our kids, let's kneel down for prayer. And in church, often we say, hey, let's kneel for prayer. That's a very common thing to do. But in Paul's world there in the first century Christian or Jewish world, the typical prayer posture was not kneeling, it was standing. They would stand and kind of open their arms and and uh, respectfully lift their, their faces to heaven or even towards Jerusalem to where they believed the presence of God was. And For example, in Mark chapter 11, when Jesus was teaching on prayer, He says, hey, whenever you stand praying, da-da-da-da-da. Or in Luke 18, the, the story of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the description of their praying there was standing. There's only really two instances in the New Testament where someone is described in prayer and kneeling And the first one is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a picture of intensity, of intense prayer. And the next one was Stephen when he was being stoned as he lifted his thoughts towards God. And perhaps from those two instances, the posture of kneeling became known as when you have something really heavy to pray about. When something is deep and sincere, even desperate, you bow your knees. You don't stand. You prostrate yourself on the ground and you pour your heart out to God. And Paul, he so much wanted the believers to to fully realize this revealed mystery of what God's love had done for them in Jesus. These Gentiles that had been told, you are outside of all of this. He so much wanted them to realize, no, you are fully in this. He says, for this reason I'm going to pray, but I'm not going to pray standing. I'm going to bow my knee and I'm going to pray for you. And he prays three big requests for these people. Each one is prefaced with the word that. I am praying that and that and that. And I just want you to see this beautiful prayer because he's praying it over us as well. For this reason, I bend my knee and I pray that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. The first prayer request Paul has is is that you would be granted the Holy Spirit of God that it would strengthen your inner person and that strengthening would be given according to the measures of the riches of God's glory. That sounds like an abundant measure, doesn't it? And he prays that prayer so that his next prayer request might also come to pass. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith And that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints that which is the breadth, the length, the height, the the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. His second prayer request. He's saying, I pray that the Holy Spirit would, would strengthen your inner person according to the riches of God's glory so that Jesus Christ may dwell in your hearts. Because with Jesus dwelling in your heart, you will begin to be able to understand. You will become more firmly rooted and grounded in God's love. That you'll be able to comprehend better. Not fully. Because fully, it surpasses our ability to fully understand the unfathomable riches of Christ. 
But he's saying, but with the Holy Spirit strengthening your inner man and the indwelling of Christ, Christ who knows the fullness of God's love, with his indwelling, you'll be better able to understand the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love that is found in Jesus. But it surpasses all knowledge. And finally, the third prayer request in 19, right there at the end, he says, and that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. I think it's good to infer there the fullness of God's love. His third prayer request, that you may be filled up with the fullness of everything God has for you. Fellow heirs, fellow members of the body of Christ, and fellow participants in the promises of God granted through Jesus. I want to take my own little rabbit trail for two seconds here. Did you notice that Paul's prayer petitions are built on the threefold nature of God? I pray that you would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit so that you might have a fuller indwelling of Jesus the Son so that through His indwelling you might have a greater revelation of the Father God. And Paul's words are still offered for us today. Paul then closes his prayer with a doxology of praise. And these few words that closes this chapter, verses 20 to 21, will close right here. These few words, they're, they're the climax of the letter thus far, and they're probably kind of the central climax of the entire letter because after this moment, the rest of the letter kind of turns to more uh, living for Jesus, living in that reality of everything that Christ has done. And this is how he closes the prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Is this prayer for you and me? He didn't say, I pray this prayer for this generation, or maybe for just three or four generations. I pray this prayer for all generations who will come into the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's us. If you ever said, I just wish I could hear God speak, He's speaking to you right now through the words of the book of Ephesians. For this prayer, inspired by God through Paul, was meant for all generations. His prayer is sincere, it is heartfelt, and it is lofty. I pray this prayer and praise to the one who's able to do far more than we can even imagine. I want to close with prayer today. I just invite you to bow your heads as we pray. God, we sincerely pray. Please strengthen our inner person by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that Jesus, you can dwell within us more fully. 
so that with the indwelling of Jesus, we might be filled with the fullness of the Father God's love. Now to Him be the glory, who is able to do far more than we even dare ask or imagine in Jesus Christ for all generations forever and ever, including our own generation. In your name we pray. Amen.